Welcome. This is The Deal with Danny Brown. I'm Danny Brown, and you're listening to my podcast where I'm going to be interviewing tastemakers, influencers, business leaders in real estate, finance, technology, entertainment, sports, and beyond. This is the first episode, the debut, the godfather of tenant rep commercial real estate, Jim Travers is our guest, a true icon and legend in the real estate industry, a character, funny guy, a pretty darn good quarterback, and also my father-in-law. How about that? Jim Travers is going to talk us through how he started in New York, how he came to LA, how he changed the game, some of the challenges he sees today, and where the real estate market is going, et cetera, et cetera. Looking forward to getting into it with Jim Travers. Thanks for tuning in. Jim Travers, welcome. We're fired up to have you here. So thanks for Thank coming. Thank you, Danny. It's a pleasure being here. And it's nice to see you all dressed up like the way you are. I dressed up for you today. I, Once you, you leave, I'm putting on jeans and a t-shirt <laughs> and maybe go surfing. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> okay, fair enough. So happy to have you here. I'm glad you were able to take a few moments away from door knocking. But let's just get into it. Start from the beginning. Why don't you tell us a little bit about where you grew up, where you went to school, uh, where you started your career, and how you got to L.A., the land of all the, the crazies. I was born uh, in New York City in 1947, and I was a New York boy for many years, and then moved out to the suburbs. And from the suburbs, I became very involved in the um, world of sports and became very popular. And began, So I had a very nice childhood as far as being the president of junior, junior high school, very much involved in athletics. And then I made kind of a sharp turn when I decided to leave uh, my parents and public school and go to boarding school. So Got I went it. to Cheshire Academy in Connecticut, which at the time I went there was a feed school to Yale. By the time I went there, it was a feed school to prison. The only thing that I didn't do, I didn't go to prison. But it was a very You're the fine, only guy that graduated uh, that didn't graduated, go to prison? So it was a very fine school. <laughs> and uh, from there, I went on to Cincinnati University in 1965. Yeah, not quite Yale, but close enough. Not quite Yale. And <laughs> the reality is uh, Cincinnati was um, a great spot for me where um, I became very involved, as I have been my whole life, uh, in school politics, in school sports, right. and became a, a stepping stone to get involved in the business world. And that was the time, 1965 to 1969, was really the heart and soul of the Vietnam War. Yeah, crazy time. And it became very, 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 very difficult and uh, very emotional and seeing body bags being delivered every night on TV yeah, was a very, very, very difficult time. And the school, as other schools, becoming very um, involved in protesting the war. And Cincinnati was becoming a, one of the hotspots because the SDS was where the SDS was a student for democratic society. Uh, Abby okay. Hoffman created that in Cincinnati. And the school was about to boil over. So you were the president of the school at that while this was going on. I got appointed to be the ombudsman, which is an ombudsman is a person that's able to understand how to defuse conflicts. Got it. Because that's interesting. I was very involved with the uh, school mediator. politics, mediator, and knowing all the players that were involved in every aspect. 
So I was very involved in the world of how to defuse what could have been a tremendously major riots that were taking place. I knew all the players that were on the protesting side. I knew all the players that were causing all the issues, and they were buying yeah. guns and rifles, and it was a very, very tumultuous time. Well, good training ground to negotiate was, big uh, uh, business big, deals. As I mentioned yesterday, uh, at Cincinnati, uh, I was in a fraternity, and um, I was looking for an apartment uh, to move out of the fraternity house, and I found a five or six building unit, townhouses, right across the street, Okay. Um, an elementary school in perhaps one of the most uh, difficult neighborhoods. It was in, the hood in, in Cincinnati? In, in Cincinnati. <laughs> and so I'm driving by by myself, and I see this townhouse. And I walk in, and this woman bought it, forget her name, and did a phenomenal job of taking these old townhouses built in the early 1900s and made them beautiful. High ceilings, broken okay. fireplaces. Complete renovation. And so it was empty because no one really wanted to... Uh, to move there because the neighborhood was really very difficult to Got it. So it's a beautiful building in the hood. No one wants it. No you one find wants it. it. So I, uh, I meet the super. I asked super who owns the place. And I met with the woman. And I said to her, I will have this place leased up in 30 days. <laughs> What's the deal? What's the deal as far as uh, how am I being compensated for bringing everyone in? And she said, if you can do that in 30 days, uh, will definitely pay you a very nice commission. So you so made a deal with, right there. It was your right first there, real estate deal? Within 30 days, I had the entire place leased with all the fraternity guys and all the guys that so I knew. So it becomes Animal House. And it became an Animal House because <laughs> in those days, uh, obviously, I'm mentioning my age, but the Molly Goldberg show was when Molly Goldberg opened up her window and yell out to the, her family, is dinner time or lunch time? So the place was right. just full of all college kids, and it was a ball. So that's your first deal. That was my first deal, and it was a lot of fun. Yeah. And then I graduated in 1969, and uh, that was when the war was really starting right. to peak. And fortunately, at the time, um, I got a 4F uh, playing football, and so I got a 4F from the Army. Meaning? Or F. I got drafted uh, in those days. It was a draft. So and it was a I, waiver because you had an injury. I, I got drafted, and I had to fight it for about 35, 40 days. Yeah. But fortunately, I got a puncture lung playing football in college, and I was able to get the doctor who uh, operated on me to write a very strong letter. Yeah. So and let's, so let's that, rewind right there because right. we glossed over that. For those of you that don't know you as well as I know you, you actually are a pretty good quarterback. Uh, you played. You were a high school star. And uh, you had a horrible injury, and that pretty much sounds like it derailed you. But right. was there a time when you thought, hey, look, I'm going to pursue football and continue to play through college and maybe uh, NFL? Because uh, you actually do have a pretty high-level uh, arm, uh, even uh, at this day when we play. Right. You're throwing the ball 50 yards with the spiral, and it's pretty impressive. So I'm curious, when did sports end, and when did, when did that become, hey, look, sports is done, I'm moving on to other things? It was very clear. I tried out for the uh, football team of Cincinnati. I just said after all the accolades. And ended up with a up. punctured lung or something. And, um, no, so I tried out, and that's when the new prototype quarterback, no forgets, August, like 103 degrees, we're out there sweating and working out. And a very prominent young man walks on the field, a 6'4", you know, 225, 230 pounds. Not great, Jewish. Not Jewish. Great cook. 
Greg Cook comes to from Iowa, and he was the quarterback of the future. And that was the end. And that was the end. So I realized that was where the key. No and NFL Greg dreams. Cook went on to be the quarterback for Cincinnati Bengals when the. Well, there you the, go. Yeah. You know, so that was the. Uh, so that I played a lot. I was my, my football days were very high in the, in the fraternity league. Yeah. But that was really it. That was the start. And you had some major injuries, and that kept you out of the war. Fortunately, at the time, it was pretty serious. But at the time, at the end of the day, it, it changed my life. Yeah. So let's now get into your career arc. Uh, you were, you finished school. What did you do first? Was real estate your first job? Did you do something else? Well, how did you get into the commercial real estate business? And you were in New York. So how did you go from New York to LA? I'd love to hear a little more about As that. As I mentioned, so I graduated college at the peak of my career. And I went back home to the small bedroom that I moved out of when I was like 15 years old. Uh, my beautiful girlfriend that I had in college, we broke up. I'm totally miserable, I'm a flower child, I never worked a day in my life. <laughs> and I said to myself, this is not part of the program. And I wanted to go into the foreign service, that's why I majored in political science, but because of the war, the timing was really not appropriate. So my father and I, as many kids that graduated college, living in New York, you took out the New York Times classified section and right. on a Sunday at the breakfast table, we went through all the classified ads. That's and how you found a job. That, uh, it was a new, brand new company called G.W. Michaels. Uh, these two guys, Michael Wolf and Michael Gott, uh, just left Studley. Uh, they assembled the Citicorp building on 53rd Street and Lexington Avenue, uh, which is a major, major um, success story for them. And they formed their own company. They wanted a runner. So you become the and runner. So I That's went your there. first job. And so at the time, I was um, not a happy camper because the running position was all commission. I never worked a day in my life. I didn't have to. And now I'm knocking on doors, and I'm just being run over like a railroad train. I just <laughs> could not make a deal. So you're getting beat up. You couldn't get arrested. Couldn't beat up. And I couldn't figure out what was going on. And make a long story short, I uh, after about a year or so, year and a half, I left the business, and my father had a very prominent um, garment manufacturing operation in New York City, and I reluctantly, I went to work for him. Got it. So you got beat up, spit out, and kicked out of the real estate kicked business. Out, and it was That's uh, how it all started for Jim Travers. It all started, and so my father had a lot of little small companies in New York City that catered to the garment center, hangers, bags, right. and he had a manufacturing company that um, manufactured all the racks. With the four wheels, put the dresses on to go into trucks. So he gave me this company yeah. and um, had about 11 employees. And they were very nice guys, all different nationalities. This is in the city. In this the is city, New York City. On, yeah. Like 11th Avenue on 38th Street. It was really a tough neighborhood at the time. And I found it to be fascinating that I'm now starting to sell truckers and getting into the sales business. And I realized it takes a different type of personality to be a salesman than I was doing for a year and plus at the commercial real estate brokerage business. But what really changed my whole career is that these 11 or 12 employees that um, working for me, socializing with for, you know, for breakfast and lunch, they were stealing from me. Oh, no. I thought that was the greatest thing in sliced bread because it was a pretty small manufacturing What are they stealing? What do you have? Like your equipment? Oh, inventory. Uh, all, all the pipes coming in, the wheels. And 
I just couldn't figure this puppy out. Stuff how, was disappearing. How you didn't know where it went. How these guys taking all these materials? <laughs> we're having breakfast and lunch together, and then I do inventory, and it's something's not, not adding up. Something's <laughs> adding up. So that's what really told me uh, myself. Okay, this is a, a game changer for my personality. I worked with my father about maybe eight or nine, ten months at okay, best. Okay, so not even a year. I went to my father on a Wednesday afternoon in the summertime. My wife, Francine, uh, your mother-in-law, was I was a receptionist at a bill on, on in Fifth Avenue. Hard at, to imagine at her working, but okay. And I said, I said, Dad, the ball game is over. Thank you very much. I'm going back to real estate. And that's when- So that was over, so bad, you're going back to real estate. I, I go back to real estate because then I had a much better sense. A better perspective, perspective of how of to what handle was yourself. taking place. So, so where did you go from there? I went to go see there? Fran and she gave me yellow pages. And that's when the whole thing started. It was a company called uh, Douglas Elliman. Douglas Elliman, yeah. At Very the time well known. was the largest Today. residential real estate firm in New York City. Okay. But it was owned by a very prominent developer called Peter Sharp and Company. Mm-hmm. And Peter Sharp um, owned the Carlisle Hotel, the Peninsula. They were major developers. So he was a landlord and, and developer. Building major high rise office buildings. And that's when they um, hired me because Peter Sharp Company just bought a building at 1486th Street. Which was a flop house hotel. Got it. Drugs, the, prostitutes. Uh, where the Copacabana was located down below, and said, "Here, kid, go lease it up." So at that point, it's just a rundown piece of run junk down, building. Location, but it was just empty. Sitting empty. So I divided my life to those guys. Uh, Fred Wilpon, which owns the Mets and Saul Cats, were my mentors, huh. and um, I made it into a medical building, and I'm virtually. Sleeping there, I'm going to conventions, what? I'm knocking on doors, I'm trying to get this building going. Sleeping there, like literally sleeping there, like you right, had a bed there. in the, I was in the really building? really because I was really devoted to get this building <laughs> off the ground. And I'm knocking on doors one night around 6.30 to a, a doctor, and he opens the door, and I see a woman in stirrups. And I said to myself, that woman, something's going on. So when the doctor came out. I said, you know, Jim Travers had the building across the street. And what were you doing there? He said, I was performing an abortion. I said, an abortion? That is a brilliant idea. <laughs> and I then went and I found a Dr. Fossum who wanted to open up. It was New York City and was the first, well, New York State was the first state in the union to well, allow abortions. And so I there you are. My first, uh, I made uh, light bulb a 20, goes off, and I you, made oh. a twenty-five thousand square foot abortion clinic deal with Doctor Fossum. Solid deal, right there. It was right a huge there. deal, young yeah. kid, and that's how it all uh, that got, got you going. So that was the whole start that's of it. That's unreal. Was there any controversy with the abortions at that time? Once it was up and running, and there was Dr. no picketing Fossum and violence and all nothing. that thing. It was uh, very well run. Yeah, he had. It was a new. Um, a vehicle being created yeah. then called an SUV. Yeah. Uh, that was brand How about new. That, that was the, brand new. He used to go to LaGuardia Airport, pick up the women at the airport, drive them to the uh, 1460th Street. That's unreal. Go upstairs to the sixth or seventh floor, check in, had a psychologist. You were the abortion broker. Had a, had a, that's how I was. Had a <laughs> psychologist interview the women if they were mentally uh, sound for it. You know, 45 minutes later, the ball game was over. That was it. A recovery, another hour or so. And wow. then back, all the women back on the SUV. To back the airport. To LaGuardia airport. So they're flying in from all over the place. because it's Primarily along the East Coast. Okay. So it was basically a, a day visit. Well, that is a history lesson right there. So 
you're you're starting to build a business in New York. Obviously, you're in L.A. You've been in L.A. since seventy. So, what was the impetus? An L.A. A New York guy, tough, brash, aggressive. You're known to be a New Yorker. How in the heck did you get to L.A. and what happened when when you did get so, to LA? Um, I left the um, Douglas Elma company. I went to work for a gentleman named Edward S. Gordon. Yeah, and Eddie is, and to this day, really the uh, the foundation of CBRE. Got it. Yeah, and so I worked with him, and I was also starting to make a major move in the commercial real estate brokerage business, and. When I married your mother-in-law, I went to boarding school, as I mentioned, so I was out of the house at 15 years old. And I married your mother-in-law, Fran, when, right out of her house. And God so, bless Francine. <laughs> and so we got married, and as a bachelor, I was living at a beautiful, brand new 50-story apartment house on 57th Street, nice. Second you're Avenue. you living large? Living, well, it's a pretty small in this uh, office. But still but living large at that point in your situation. life. Yeah. And I just made the Ferrari deal in New York City. So in my, op- in my building- For a Ferrari dealer there, there or their office? It was a Rolls Royce dealership on the ground floor. And the retail store next door became available. So I thought it'd be a great idea to put sure, a Ferrari smart. dealership. So Luxury I retail, did, all my, uh, did all my due diligence. And Mr. Gino Ferrari came to uh, New York, and I made the deal. Did he give you a Ferrari in lieu of he commission? Didn't ask for it, but okay. basically. <laughs> so the point is, I'm just starting to get rolling, and I'm working very hard. You're making it happen. You're and growing then, your business. Um, because of the cost of rents in New York was so expensive, most married couples go out to a place called Forest Hills. Okay. So it's a very lovely Long neighborhood. Long Island. It was right in Queens, but Queens. it's a very nice spot. And uh, in those days, uh, you had telephone operators answering the phone so if you call someone you spoke to the operator right. and she would plug in <laughs> a little different uh, neighborhoods and, numbers. and so what that did is really prohibited a lot of personal phone calls because everyone knew who was calling in got it and so on and so forth wow a lot so of gossip I, around so that. when i came exactly right to eliminate gossip so i came home on a thursday night and we're in our one bedroom um apartment of forest hills on the ground floor with 18 bars in the window, 19 locks in the front door, uh, <laughs> one bed, one couch. Sounds luxurious. And um, my wife Francine is um, sitting in the couch. She's crying like a baby. So I say, Francine, what could you possibly be crying about? Right. I haven't talked to you all day. What's up? What's going on around here? My father came over yeah. and um, he's moving the entire family to California for business reasons. Boom, just like that. Just like that. And Francine, again, uh, marrying her out of her family, uh, being left all alone in New York City, uh, she became very concerned. At the same time, uh, California in the 60s and 70s was a lot really, different than uh, it is today. New Yorkers uh, have a whole different attitude sure. towards the great state of California, especially the folks living in LA. And being a New Yorker and Fran being a New Yorker, it was a major decision. And she asked me if I would move to California. And I was out in California during the college days and it was really nowhere near you know, the, the density and the propensity of what it is in New York City. But I was going to NYU real estate school at night and the professors there were not teachers, but they were the guys that owned New York. 
Got the it. big landlords. They were broker, landlords. The big brokers, landlords. Major players were. Players teaching. Uh, it's very NYU. different now. So they kept insinuating, take your New York chutzpah and go west. So my That's wife. So they were preaching that. That was something. That was a narrative was that, that hey, that that there's opportunity. Much, uh, so my wife Fran asking me um, and going to school. So we decided to come out. And uh, obviously, it's quite beautiful. But I had a major decision to make. Either we get divorced because I was very ensconced in New York. Yeah, stuff was born, starting to happen. Born and raised. I was just now making a definite move. Or start take, over. Take a shot in my life, which I've always done by going to boarding school and always being independent, is maybe take this opportunity to make something and see how it goes, knowing that I always can go back to New York. Right, so you so went for it, you moved to California. After a lot of uh, contemplation, I decided to make the move with, with my wife, Fran, which has proven to be uh, a blessing, and uh, a big blessing in doing so. Yeah, we wouldn't be here today if it wasn't it, for that it, move. Exactly right, <laughs> it was a major situation. So we came out here, it's 1973, uh, that was the time of the first oil embargo. Okay. So uh, because being a New Yorker, uh, we wanted to fly out, get to work. So we put all our belongings on the Beacons in moving and storage company. Right. And because there was uh, gunshots along the Pennsylvania Highway because of the oil embargo, the surcharge to move all our belongings became very expensive. I just bought a brand new Buick uh, Skylark. And nice. I nice had ride, that, I Skylark. Had, I had that all on the train, the Baltimore Ohio Railroad. It's all coming to and California. I'm flying out to LA because now March or so, I got to get back to work and get myself going here. So uh, we have a place on Burton Way that, of course, uh, we made a deal but didn't sign the lease. And the day before coming out, we're told that the building is going to foreclosure. Oh, great. And the security deposit that we put up could be in jeopardy. Oh, God, you're going to lose the real estate business, right? Yeah. So that's going on. We're moving to California. My wife is not so real eating smooth, that much. Real it smooth was a very tense time. And so we fly out like the rainstorms here we're having come out in March. It's raining like cats and dogs. I go to my in-law's house uh, when we first arrive on the airport. And my mother-in-law wants to talk to me privately. I said, well, what's up? Why can't we discuss it? No, I really got to talk to you privately. So I go into um, her den. And she says, I got a phone call today from the Baltimore, Ohio Railroad. I said, great, where's my car? Well, that's the problem. Your car fell off the train oh, no. and totally demolished happen? a brand new car. That's how I said. I thought, what was it? It was in Colorado. Was it was in the mountains? No, right in Staten Island. It wasn't attached on. Oh no! So all my brand new car, all my sports power, all the so things that I cherish. So you're just taking blows. So I'm getting hit uh, <laughs> left and right. Now I got to buy two cars. So the first six months uh, was not what we call a smooth transition. Right, you weren't a happy In New York camper. City, I'm a real estate broker. Uh, the broker's license exam is like a 30-page pamphlet. You read it, you go in, and you pass it. Yeah. Then I, I, I need to become a broker in LA. Right, so you have to retake, get so a license in California. Why study? So I get the uh, invitation to go down to the convention center. That's where you I took am. the test then? Three, the, yeah, 3,000 or so people down there. Taking the real estate exam I in the convention up, center. I opened up this book. I said to myself, 
It's like a foreign language. They right. had houses and joists and roofs. So couldn't have been more polar opposite than what you knew when you had no so, clue what they were talking no about. No clue. So, of course, I failed the test. <laughs> I'm brilliant. About, so I failed the test. I'm trying to do deals in New York. There are a few earthquakes taking place. We earthquakes. organized our deal with the Burton Way place. I just bought two cars. I have very little money coming in, if like zero. And this is not part of the program. Yeah. So you're stressed but out. I'm stressed out. So now I'm going to UCLA Law Library at nighttime to study for the next for exam. For the exam. For oh, the exam. God. But finally, uh, things settled down. And being a New Yorker and being a foot canvasser, I'm canvassing uh, every single day and knocking on doors. Meaning literally walking into buildings? Walking buildings. In that time, L.A. was a very, it was a cow town. You had a few, cow build, town. You had a few buildings in Westwood. <laughs> A few buildings downtown of any consequence. Otherwise, it was all low rise, and not. And what? Of, give me an example. What would you do? There's a building in Westwood. You would literally park your car, walk right into I an would, office. Uh, but a high, it's a high rise at that point. High floor? rise building, uh, about eight thirty, quarter nine. And those days have about uh, three or four dollars of coins in my pocket. Because you're using pay phones, obviously pay no phones. cell phones. And then uh, with no Google, nothing right. there. So I'd walk in, and I would. Asked to see the president of the company. I mean, you'd walk right into an right office. Right into receptionist. And I would ask who the president is, because that gives it away immediately. I'm not sure. I'm not having a meeting. Make a long story short, I would canvas the building from 8.30 uh, to about 12. You'd be in one building or multiple buildings? buildings but basically, so you're but hitting a lot notes, of different taking offices. Taking notes, knowing what's going on. It was a full floor. I would ask the receptionist before I left, could I please use the restroom? And by doing that, I was able to scout out where the president's office got was it. or wasn't. So I got myself a lay of the land. So you were strategically and figuring under, out the layout, who are the key players, who was in, in what office. You want to see the ceilings, are they old? You want to see the place. You want to get a sense of what's really taking place in the environment of the office. Yeah, so you were and doing then, research on the buildings too. And then uh, break around 3.30, come back around 4.00 and then go back to where I was that morning. So now I know who I'm asking for, and around 5, 5.15, I know the receptionist was gone. So I got past that issue. And then you have to go through the executive secretary. So, so least, now you're at ne the next layer the of next defense. next layer, so I would get in, and in that 5.30, 6 zone, most of the executive secretaries were gone. And that was the key. Walk, walk right in. So you in. go in late. You come in late. Right. That was the idea. So canvas in the morning, see what's going on, weigh the land, get organized. And this organized. was your daily routine. This is what you did. I knew every telephone booth from here up to uh, Moore Park. And how long did it take doing that to get traction in this and know, hey, this is actually working. I'm putting deals together. I'm making a living. Was my it pretty big, quick? Did it take uh, a year? My big break came when I um, met with Alex Hodenpile who's the general manager of Algamedi Bank that was coming to Los Angeles. And at the time in the 60s and early 70s, San Francisco was the financial capital of California. But the population was substantially larger to be in Los Angeles. So the banks now started to look at L.A. as the growth potential. Yeah. Yeah. So L.A. was starting to take off as a major region. So I made region. a deal with uh, Albemarle Bank, 
at the time was the Arco Center downtown, now City National Bank. And from there, I then started to go fly back to New York and meet all the banks. Got it. And bring them out here. So from so you the used 70s your, to your the mid-80s, I virtually uh, dominated the international banking community. My so second, that put you on the map in a big that way. That basically was uh, where I really concentrated. And not like today where the buildings are locked off. Yeah, but, I got to uh, think it's very night, different today. Every night, I would, and I still do it today the best I possibly can, go out and knock on doors, meet people. And uh, that's how the whole company got built up. And you started in your own company by 78, Travers. By the time you started Travers, April were you at that, that yes. point already rolling and the business was established? I, I, I always wanted to have my own company. So I worked from 1978 with a company called uh, Milton Meyer, which is now the Shorenstein Company. Okay. Same people. And then those guys uh, left and formed their own firm for a while. So I worked in Westwood, and then I always wanted to have my own company. I just made a very important deal um, out in Warner Center for about 200,000 square feet. So I made a very big deal, and the time was come to be on my own. So you made a big deal, like this is the perfect time, let's perfect leverage time. this to start and my- so I went across the street to what was the Occidental Petroleum Building uh, in Westwood. In Westwood, on in Wilshire. Westwood, I had a small office and- And it was just you? Just me. And was that your concept when you started? Like, hey, it's just me, I just want my office. Or was your concept, hey, it's gonna start with me and I'm gonna turn into CBRE or one of the big shops. What was what was your mindset uh, that, The big concept was to um, form a company they would only represent tenants. Yeah, so, so that's that, a big thing because tenant rep niche. now is normal, but back then there was no tenant rep. It was rep. a shock to the system when I registered my name, a Travis Realty, the tenant's broker. The whole world was laughing at me. Uh, it didn't really exist. No one it's, knew it's, what it's you were talking It's impossible, impossible to have an, a company focusing on one small piece of the pie. We have to have income coming in from residential, residential but management, Asset management. Right. A full, broad and portfolio so I, of different I said, asset no, classes. I understand that. And so I uh, believed in myself. I always did. Take a major bet on myself. So you took the risk. Took the risk. Focused on a niche that everyone said you're nuts. And, and then, you and blew up. Right. And, it and went my well. first deal was uh, really with Exxon Corporation, moving them from Century City uh, out to Westlake. And so was that, that a big was, deal or just one of your first deals? It was, uh, well, that was my first major deal under my own name. Got it. But uh, so I made a big deal with the insurance company to go out to Warner Center under the old regime. Yeah. And that was so I was just uh, killing it for about five or six years because no one was able to no really do doing what you were what doing. I was doing. And that, as you said, today, uh, the word uh, tenant brokerage has been so diluted. It really has yeah, now no, it's commonplace and it's, it's, commonplace. it's a big business and every right. big company has a tenant rep division or people are focusing on tenant rep. So that's an interesting point thinking about then versus now. Obviously the world has changed. You were talking about door knocking and canvassing. I'd be curious your take now, now that you've been, now it's 2019. I would think back then the person getting into commercial real estate, you were from New York, you were street smart, tough, smart. But now we're getting the Harvard MBA, the Stanford MBA, everyone's really coming from all this pedigree to get into commercial real estate. Door knocking, probably a lot different. What, what do you see, what has changed the most versus when you started in the late 70s to now? You hit me on the heads. Today, uh, my reputation has been built on making phenomenal real estate deals. 
were economically very well driven. In fact, I just got, I made a big deal downtown and I got a letter from the landlord saying this is the most terms and conditions they've ever offered to anyone in their two million square foot project. Right, well that's kind of been your thing. It sounds like a, your reputation is you've gotten some right. big deals, but big deals that were known to be great value deals for the tenant, which is rare in a market like this where the landlords usually dominate and dictate terms. So that's- But Danny, that's the change. Uh, that's changed. That's that, one of the that, big changes. That's the whole change. Today, um, as I mentioned before recently, uh, walking in now and saying to a prospective uh, customer that I can out-negotiate any broker, any place, any time, anywhere, and here's all the backup to support what I'm saying, Right, is totally goes in one year out the other. Got it. So that's not compelling, and right, that these is days? no longer the whole factor. So there's been a major be change factor. in my whole entire program. Today, they do want the Harvard, the Stanford. Uh, they want to see a major Spreadsheets. team. Spreadsheets. Well, that we do, but they want to see the, the uh, a whole team of logistic players coming in uh, for labor statistics, the Got consulting it. side. The consulting side is this the right location? Where should I be? So, so very they want corporate. to have much more of a whole attitude in making a real estate decision that I'm used to that I grow up with is go in and just get me the best uh, deal possible. I work with a lot of very 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 wealthy uh, individuals owning companies. That has not changed. So I deal with the top chairmen of the board. Uh, they love it. But going to a major corporation today and meeting the head of real estate or vice president, they just want a whole different perspective. Got it. And so that is where the world has changed. So you're not dealing with the chairman of the board or the principal these days. They're big companies and there's the head of real estate that is not the owner of the company. And Right. That's the key. So I mean, I try to deal with it because that's where that's the, your ben- that's that's your, where the uh, relationship advantage comes in, right. but in this day and age, uh, it's changing. There's several layers of several corporate layers people involved. They want the big flags all over the world. You know, they want different things. So the economics today is not as big of a factor. It's just one piece of the pie, not the, not the entire piece. thing. So if Travers can save you two or three million dollars, that's great on the real estate deal, but we can save you five to $10 million on an employment analysis. You should be here rather than there and the incentives. So that's why after 41 years, about five years ago, we joined Cressa. Right, you merged with Cressa, a bigger is, tenant Which is rep. the largest tenant brokerage firm in the world, and we have all the consulting strength and capacity, so we made that adjustment to be able to compete. So in this you world. had to you had to bob and weave and adjust, adjust exactly or right. survive, right? Exactly, re-evolve, right. reposition. That's so that thing. said, you're still very involved. You're doing still lots of big deals. Uh, and what are some of like the most interesting deals? Whether it's big, whether it's the biggest, whether it's the most complicated, whether it took. What are a couple stories? I hear some things. I hear more stories from outside the family, because you right. never t- talk about the deals you do. I know that's right. something you don't like to do, but I'm putting you on the spot now. I'd sure. love to hear a couple of your big deals or well-known deals or complicated. I- I'd like to hear a little bit about uh, that. One deal uh, comes to mind uh, is working with Eli Broad. Yeah. Uh, Eli Broad owned the Kaufman and Broad Company. Mm-hmm. And uh, my associate Lawson and I uh, did a deal for KB out in the Valley in Warner Center that was a a sparkling idea. It was a great deal. 
And so the principal of Kaufman and Broad recommended me to meet with Eli Broad. I just bought Sun America. Okay. And they were located at 11601 Wilshire Boulevard over here in San Vicente and Wilshire. Brentwood. At Brentwood. So I met with Eli's right-hand person, Benita Koonsman, a lovely lady, tough as nails, very sharp. <laughs> I bet. And she kept saying, do you really want to meet with Eli? He's very, very tough. He's very strong. Sure. And I said, sure. I, I, we got to meet with him. we got to meet with him. So we met with Eli, and sure enough, uh, he really asked all these very, very, very uh, yeah. serious, detailed sure. questions. Not screwing uh, around. But he was very serious and made some phone calls and uh, to verify my credentials. And he hired me and my associate Lawson, but only on a very small parameters. He was at the building, I said, the World Savings Building, 11601. And the mission was for me, if I'm such a strong negotiator, have World Savings take their name off the building and put my name on top. Put his company's name, even though it's their building. Sun America. And as far as you can go is Westwood. So I said, Eli, that's a pretty tight, it's a pretty, pretty tight market. Yeah. I know, Jim, do it. So make a long story short, I have World Savings agree to share the signage with Sun America, but that wasn't good enough. And the two buildings in Westwood just went into foreclosure and the uh, bank took back the buildings and they, they were not in a position to make a real estate deal. Got it. So Lawson and I are scratching our heads. What are we gonna do here? Well, there was a new building being built in Century City at 1999 Avenue of the Stars. It was being built. Being built. And um, I went with Lawson to the owners, J&B, out of Chicago, and said, why don't we give uh, Eli signage on top of the building and give him a tremendous signing bonus for him to come over to Century City? And as sure as God made apples, they said, who are you? You're coming <laughs> to my office. You're dictating to you're me nuts. that you want me to put up Eli's name on top of the building and you want me to pay him <laughs> a huge multi-million dollar signing bonus to come into my building that basically we were 85% leased. I said exactly what we are communicating. He said, in that case, there's the door, please leave. I said, you're making a mistake. You're making a mistake. Don't kick me out. He said, please leave. Okay? Kicked you out of his office. He said, basically, you know, the ball game is over, not doing it. Make a long story short, everyone's kept telling me in Century City, no one has a top of building signage and you can't get it. Got it. So Lawson and I went down to City Hall and we read the CCNRs for Century City, and it was developed by Zeckendorf, a major, he, is a, he really is the father of, of Century City, of mass development. He's known throughout the United States, and he bought the back lot of uh, Fox Studios. Okay. And he was a developer of Fox Studios. So that and was all the back lot? That's what Century City the, was? Yes, that's all Century City is a back lot of a studio. And Alcoa Aluminum was his financial partner. Make a long story short, we read uh, 
literally the entire CCNRs, and it proved to be that the landlords control the sign rights in Century City. So they At make the, the time, decision. JMB was the largest owner in Century City. They owned the Twin Towers. They okay. own the hotel. So they own they own everything. 19, own everything. So I call up Chicago, and I said to the ball game is back on, guys. <laughs> the ball game is back on. We can get sign rights. Give me the sign rights, and we'll take the top five floors of the building. And negotiations proceed. The only issue is we haven't told Eli this yet. Right. <laughs> You're going to so, get him from Westwood to Century City. So we speak, uh, we speak to Benita, and she is very much a brand-new building. And we go to Eli's house in August, and Lawson and I meet with Eli. And nice. we give him the news that we have this great deal for him, but it's not quite Westwood. And Close. it's not quite. <laughs> and could he please give me the opportunity to come see the building? Yeah. So what does Eli have to say about that? Jim, I said, Eli, please, just come see it. I got the sign rights, everything's ready. So Benita, myself, and Eli, we drove over to Century City, went upstairs. Top five floors. We took it. Nice. And, and took, it took the deal. And so that was- so How uh, much space is five, five floors at that point? It was point? like 120,000 yeah. square feet. So great so, deal. Great deal. So, that, so I've been with Eli now. Yeah. Uh, for all these years. Got it. So, so that's now, fascinating. So that's been my uh, my cup of tea. So those kind of deals. And you did recently the new Warner Brothers records deal. That was an interesting deal because it was downtown, the Arts District, and that sort of really put so Warner Music Arts was District on the map. And, um, Burbank forever. Burbank. I mean, for the, the building that they're in, uh, Jeff Worth and his father-in-law, David Paul, right. and myself, and my two associates, and uh, John Matthews, unfortunately, who passed away. He was the head of real estate for uh, the Warner Music. Um, we designed a building on back of a napkin for Warner Music to move into a new building in Burbank. And so we designed the building back on napkin, made the deal, and made a 20-year lease. And the 20 years uh, was come, is, has come up and expired. So about two years ago, um, my associates at Cressa, Jerry Porter and Matthew Miller and myself um, competed for the assignment because everything's changed. Yeah. We got the assignment and Warner Music did not want to go to the west side because the pricing was much too, too expensive. Too high, yeah. But they wanted a wow factor. They wanted something special. Right. And so I was in downtown, for what, for almost you know 35 years at the time, 40 years, and I was asked to go look at a property in the Arts District. Right, which now the Arts District is well-known, but it back then. The, it wasn't for Warner Music, it was for someone else. Got it. So I'm um, in the Arts District, and I'm downtown, and I had to put in my GPS system. Sure. No one went to the Arts District. It wasn't the trendy no restaurant, art gallery situation. So I find yeah. the building, and I'm touring space with this potential uh, client I made a deal with. I'm saying this building is beautiful. Henry Ford built this building in 19... 19- 14. It's a 256,000 square foot building, three levels. And Shorenstein, my old company I used to work with, just bought it and they're bringing it back to life. So right. I walk it and I call my guys at Warner Music. You got to come see this thing. This is, could be really fantastic. And sure enough, they came down. And this is uh, Cam and that crew, the Cam strategy that I know. 
uh, involved yeah, with Warner Bros. Exactly right. right. So he came down, and if that was him, that was the one. Right. He that was, was the, the chairman Empress. or the president, right. and he he said yes. And sure enough, we made the deal, and they're in. It's moved in just recently. Oh, they actually are in now. Right. So it changed the whole complexion of the art sector. And that building was originally a factory for the Ford factory. It was Ford it was, factory. It was, right. it was Henry Ford's first building he built outside Insane. Detroit. So that was a Henry Ford built that building, and it was dilapidated, and it got completely. It was, re- they were there for thirty-five years, restored, and then uh, it fell into dilapidation. And how many years was did it take to upgrade the building? Before About two and a half years. Okay, that's not bad for yeah, an old building. But it was a beautiful building, and it's very exciting. And that's located what on what street? On Seventh Street. Yeah. That's an incredible, incredible story. So, that's, uh, so that made uh, was the arts district. What made us move down there? The um, the amenity base is all there. Now it's there. It was all there. So that was the key. So all the restaurants. Sure. I think Napa Valley is known for wine. Uh, arts district is known for coffee. Every coffee shop is there. Yeah. So it made it very nice. A lot of all great the young restaurants. kids are there. You're walking their dogs. Everyone yeah. having a white T-shirt on. You're torn out jeans. Yeah. Living in the old apartments. So it has a great environment. Yeah. And so it was the environment that made us move there because we were yeah. being a pioneer on the office side, but the amenity base was already intact. Right. So I've always heard about a deal. I've read in the press and other people mention it. I don't want to spend too much time on deals because I want to move on to the other thing. But you were involved with the deal, and I can't remember the company, but it took, took a decade to complete. What is the, I know that must be a really long story, but what is the short story of this? So the... Um the long short it was that the insurance company uh, wanted to make a major move. We needed about 700,000 square feet. And we went through 13 years. 13 years? It took me 13 years. I went through every possible issue. Nothing to do with the real estate side of the equation. Oh, okay. But so we were negotiating for uh, a major new development at Warner Ridge with the Spound family and... Uh, this Bound family had a partner, and the Warner part- Ridge is that Burbank, like no, Warner it's Center? Warner Center, yeah, Warner Center. And make a long story short, the financial partner uh, fell out of bed, and J.P. Morgan came in, took over the the procedure, and they were going to build us seven hundred thousand foot building. So they had to build from scratch, because, and, and they're going to build from scratch. And so how does it take thirteen years? It- well, saying to so after about three and a half years negotiating with J.P. Morgan to. Do the deal, get the building ready to go. J.P. Morgan was using us because that the uh, Johnson Wax was a developer with the Spown family, and they foreclosed. And so J.P. Morgan. Oh, so you now have a new landlord. A new landlord. Start and so, all over. And, and so they settled up with Johnson Wax, and they told us the deal is not happening. Got so it. that three and a half years occurred, and then we went over to a new building and and the Warner Center built by Bob Voigt. as a 25-story building. We're moving in, and the earthquake came. Ah. And that earthquake uh, absolutely destroyed the entire this is the integrity. the North Ridge? Are we talking 1994? Yeah, is, yes. Yeah. So, the, make a long story short, it, from the time we started to the time we finished, it was uh, 13 years that it took me to make the deal Jesus. to stay where we were and have a new building built next door to us. That's insane. But that's yeah. not, I and mean, what's the normal uh, t- sales cycle for a client? A year or two years? I would say, depending upon the size, it's a minimum of a year to three years. Yeah. 
I'm going to switch gears here and kind of get into more of the who you are, what makes you tick. Um, obviously, your reputation and personality in business is that you're aggressive, straightforward, tough negotiator, tough as nails. But you also have another side of you, which I happen to know. You're a very dedicated family man. Your wife, children, your friends and family are, are your most important thing. How are you able to switch it on and off? How are you able to work? in a tough competitive business, which it is, but then be able to switch it off and happen to be, how do you dedicate yourself as a family man and balance it all? Yeah, that's basically um, my choice that I made is that um, having family was very important to me. And the reason why I work so hard is to support the family in the manner by which we do. So I really wanted to make sure that I was very devoted to the family um, from a personal point of view, I felt that having two daughters and to being a leader, as I've always been, is to show them you know, what it is to be married and to have you know, trustworthy parents and to be able to rely upon us as a guiding light you know, for their life. And obviously, we're very happy that Jessica you know, obviously married you. And oh, so, thank you. Yeah, but the point <laughs> is, it's been a, a, a very important for us like, to raise yeah. the kids to kind of emulate what we have tried to be a pioneer on and not to fall into the world of, uh, of other issues. So we try yeah. to be very straightforward, and that's been a major factor. Uh, my wife, Francine, has been really the key factor behind all that as far as the guide light right. of, of, of trustworthiness and uh, being honorable and being religious and knowing the importance of family. Yeah. Yeah. And what is your routine? Do you have a, a daily routine to get you going? I mean, every day to get ready to go fight the fights that you need to fight. Do you have a... Uh, every day, uh, 5.30 up, uh, ready to rock so and roll. So up early. Up early. And Has it always been this way for yeah, many years? always been this way. And that's it. So then um, I don't have a computer. I, I have my own brain. And so I think every day, like today, I... Uh, have everything mapped out on what I'm doing, where I'm going, and who I want to see. Uh, before I came here, I had a breakfast meeting, and then I had about two hours to spare. So I went canvassing uh, before I got here. Got it. You, and so I went any leads? Do it. Any I went there, so I met some people, and didn't get what I wanted. But I, Did uh, you get kicked out of any buildings? Uh, not, yet, not yet, but I certainly <laughs> went in there. And so I had some time. So the yeah. point is, I'm very, very motivated to keep myself going. And I think about every single day, if I didn't have any money, how am I going to earn money today? So, so that's on your mind every day when you wake up. That is on my mind. Starting from zero, starting from zero. Right, basically, don't look, uh, never look back or get myself as being an athlete as you are. You get fat and happy. I've seen so many people in our business have been successful, get fat and happy, think that they are on top of the world. And the reality is you're never on top of the world. So I'm very humble from that point of view. Only being as around, good as your uh, next at bat kind right, of mentality. Uh, I look at uh, all the athletes like John McEnroe. He was a top tennis player in the world. Uh, locker room boys uh, couldn't beat him. He had an issue with his wife. He took a sabbatical for six months. He never came back. Yeah. He never came back. So I, being a very sports-oriented and being very involved, I realized either I'm going to do this thing a 1,000%. Every single day. So you're all in every all morning, in. every day. Every day. Otherwise, it's not worth doing because, as you say, it's very tough. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely a person that people love to 
uh, knock off the top of the hill. And so if you hear the things that I hear or what I'm told people say about me, it's astonishing. But that's just the way life is. Just keep on going. Well, we think highly of you, Jim, so don't worry. What everyone else thinks. So you, your routine is to think about getting organized for your day. Do you have any meditation or mindfulness that you do or you don't do any of that? You're just motivated, organized, and right. go. Exactly right. And how about working out? Do you have an exercise routine? Like, what do you like to do? You know, to- basically, on the old days, if I, I was up and out, now I'm doing about an hour exercise in the morning. And then I walk every night, as you know. So I try to keep myself. And your much- exercise, uh, you walk a lot. and what- I walk a lot and use a stationary bike. Yeah. So you are working out, and that is probably part of the reason that gets, keeps your energy up. Exactly right. It's very important. Cool. Yep. Well, any other anecdotes you want to share about uh, your career? No, basically, it's uh, it's amazing uh, sitting here and talking to you. Uh, but without discussing myself, is that the tremendous impact that I've had in the greater Los Angeles area is amazing for one person. You're coming out, you know, 40 years ago, but uh, in every area from you know, Moore Park to Calabasas, to Warner Center, to Encino, to Burbank, to Beverly Hills, to downtown, All of it. to Pasadena. I've made the biggest uh, deals in those areas. So as you know, most brokerage firms and brokers concentrate in one or two areas where I've had the good fortune of really being uh, tremendously involved all over Los Angeles, as well as the United States. You know, I'm yeah. still, still very involved in New York. I'm very involved in, t- in Texas. I'm very involved in Florida. So I, I have a reputation that I built. So I'm, yeah, I like a- the idea of being able to make a major impact now that I'm looking about it. Think about it. It's uh, an interesting situation. Yeah. And what would your advice be if, you, if someone wanted or if someone was an up-and-coming commercial broker, what would be your advice be to them? What what would they focus on? What would be a couple a couple points? Uh, Danny, it's so as simple as this. Um, I have a 1.30 meeting right now. I've been calling this company for the longest time. I haven't gotten in. Uh, I sp- got in today, and they already told me they're interviewing five other brokers, and they're making a decision next week. And I said, stop, you, you gotta see me. Uh, I'll be there at 1.30 today. So the idea So you're still is, going through that. I'm still going through that. So that's basically why I am who I am, because I'm very humble, knowing that what I've done is the accolades Doesn't that, matter what, that what I have achieved in the past. is all very nice, but at the end of the day, it's really the persistency and having a focus and having a state of mind that you need to be who you are and get that point across. Sure, and that definitely would say, uh, being a commercial broker, being in real estate, you're the antithesis of what most big brokers are. It's usually the opposite. It's usually everyone amplifying how big their deals are, how fancy their life, uh, you know, the cars they drive, the fancy stuff, their client. You've actually are the antithesis, which is really interesting because it's a good lesson to learn for, uh, you know, the next generation of up and comers like, you know, Look what right, you've done, and you've uh, uh, exactly taken right. the approach of, hey, you're only as good as your next at bat. Don't worry about how big a deal you did last week or last year. It, it you're totally, starting it, over. Totally irrelevant. Totally starting over. Work hard and hustle. Right. you got to hustle from day one. But have the focus. And, and be, how long do you see yourself doing this? Well, I think uh, as long as I keep my health going. As long as they let you? As long as I keep myself going. But uh, <laughs> that's, what, that's all I know. I've been doing this yeah. since 1969. There you go. That's a long time. Do the math. That's Every a that's a good single run. day knocking on doors since 1969. Good run. It's amazing. And all my deals that have uh, that we've made virtually have come through 
going through the front door wow. on my own. I'm not one for calling up people and asking for a referral. Obviously, if I made a relationship, I'll, I'll try and use yeah. that referral. But, majority but I won't call you was... up first and say, can you get me a meeting with XYZ? I'm very much a Hardcore door knocker, deal. prospector. Right. And I tell Old my brokers school. that every deal, if you lose it, it it's, all, it's, it's all you. It might be sure. circumstances that's occurred, but it's all you. So It always t- is. Eat what you kill, it's on you. It's... That's it. And so that's what I would say. It's a great business. The freedom is phenomenal, right? And uh, right now I'm going through some uh, issues with some people that I'm very close to that are in their prime time, but the world has changed. They've been on salary, they've been working, and they're being let go. Got it. And it's, um, it's very, very difficult. And I feel very upset because they devoted their lives to these big companies, but you know, the different direction comes in. You're 58 years old, devoted 25 years to a company, and then being told that you're out of here. Well, that's one thing so, that they can't tell you as a broker. I'm fired every day. <laughs> right. I'm fired every day, so it doesn't and matter. just keep so showing up. That's my whole premise. I never wanted to be on a salary. Yeah. I just couldn't see it. Even I was saying in college, I said, so why would I want to do that? Uh, have a family, be dependent, and all of a sudden get a phone call or in the hallway, how it's happening these days. You know, Jim, we're going someplace else. Thank you very much. You've been great, but- There's a pink uh, slip so long. And the ball it's game been, is over. It's been nice. So yeah, I it's really be have awful. been very strongly committed my whole entire life on betting Entrepreneurial, on invest in yourself, bet That's on yourself. Invest yeah. in yourself, Get no it. one else. Well, I don't want to keep you too long. I know you probably have an appointment or a building to go knock in, but it was so, so great to have you. It was amazing. Danny, thank you very much for We could talk for more hours uh, another time, have you back again, but- Appreciate you being here and go get to the next building that you need to get to. (laughs) Thank you, Danny. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Great. Thank you for listening to The Deal with Danny Brown. Please do us a favor and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts, whether it's iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, anywhere else. Also, you can always follow me on Instagram at Danny Brown LA. Appreciate you following up. Please tell your friends. Talk to you soon. Yeah.